0: Decision-making and cost-effectiveness analysis rarely get as important as in the health systems, where matters of life and death are not a metaphor. Bayesian statistical modeling is extremely helpful in this field, with its ability to quantify uncertainty, include domain knowledge, and incorporate causal reasoning. Specialized in all these topics, Gianluca Bayo was the person to talk to for this episode. He'll tell us about these kind of models and how to understand them. Luca is currently the head of the Department of Statistical Science at University College London, but he's originally from the beautiful country of Italy. He studied statistics and economics at the University of Florence and completed a PhD in Applied Statistics, again at the wonderful University of Florence. He is also a very skilled pizzaiolo. So now I have two reasons to come back to visit Tuscany. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 79, recorded January 17, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore like the country. For any info about the podcast, LearnBaseStats.com is Laplace place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS and Patreon, unlocking Bayesian Merge, everything is in there. That's LearnBaseStats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stance in your company, then reach out at alex.anddora at pic-lams.io or book a call with me at learnbadance.com thanks a lot folks and best Bayesian wishes to you all
1: let me show you how to be a good crazyzy and change your predictions after taking information in. and if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing let's adjust those expectations what's a Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice, a Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjust the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman?
0: Hello, my dear Bayesians. I am always filled with gratefulness, honestly, when I see that my beloved podcast. Just got a generous new patron. This time I am talking about the wonderful Gabrielle Stechto. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. You made my day. Looking forward to talking in the LBS Slack. See you there. And in the meantime, let's talk with Gianluca. Gianluca Bayo. Benvenuto su Learning Bayesian Statistics.
2: Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. Very exciting to be here.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot for taking the time. And I think that you're one of the first Italians to come on the show. So that's really good. Oh, yeah. It was long overdue. (laughs) I really love being in Italy. So it's like, it's, yeah, that's not normal.
2: I'm very happy to hear that. I'm very happy to be to be sort of supporting my country.
0: <laughs> yeah. And thanks so to podcast patrons who actually recommended me your names. And I'm going to find the name. I always forget. But like, yeah, somebody in the Slack channel was like, oh, you should check out what Gianluca Bio is doing. It looks super interesting. And that'd be awesome to have him on the show.
2: So, oh, thank you. No pressure there. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. That's Orduick. Thanks a Or, for All right. your recommendation. Awesome. Well, let's start with favorite first question. What's your origin story, Gianluca? How did you come to the the stats and data world, and how sinuous of a path was it?
2: Right. So I think. It was pretty much by chance. When I finished the equivalent of high school in Italy, I knew that I wanted to continue to study and uh, I probably would have gone and do some kind of economics-based degree. But I wasn't quite, it wasn't like a passion or a calling of life, you know, that you always wanted to do that. Um, I studied kind of in Italy, you have a system where you can choose your high school. And I went to the more kind of scientific one. So there was maths and physics and science, that kind of stuff. And then just before deciding formally what kind of program I wanted to apply, I got a leaflet from the faculty, well, it wasn't even a faculty, it was a degree program in statistics within the Faculty of Economics in Italy. And uh, it sounded really cool. I mean, I had no real exposure to statistics other than, you know, recording things and thinking in terms of how long will it take me to, you know, queue at the post office or something. And so because I didn't really have anything planned in my life, I thought, well, well, that sounds cool. I'll just go and do statistics. And I've been very, very lucky, actually, because I've enjoyed very much my undergraduate degree. It was really good because in Florence at the time, it was a very small degree. I remember the first year, it was only 30 students overall. So a very, very small cohort, which meant it felt like a continuation of high school. You make very good friendships and it's easy to all get together and uh, revise and do that kind of experience, which was really nice. And I managed to make a living out of it. So I guess I can call myself very lucky. Hey, that's super cool. I love that.
0: I mean, I love the elements of random chance always in in people's path. It's always fun. And so actually, can you tell us what you do nowadays? How would you define the work you're doing and also the topics that you're particularly interested in?
2: Yes, so most of my research in the past several years has been related to Bayesian modeling, particularly as applied to decision problems in healthcare. So the classic problem that I tend to work in is when you have maybe a new drug or a new healthcare intervention. And in many systems, like in the UK, many European countries, you the state is the provider of healthcare and they decide whether they should pay, reimburse a certain healthcare intervention. So this is increasingly well now is very much established in many jurisdictions, certainly in the UK, the Netherlands, Germany, Italy, Spain, many, many other countries. And so this is all based on formal statistical modelling. And a lot of my research has been, throughout the years, devoted to a mixture of applications. So sometimes we work on a specific case study where we have a new drug. So we collaborate with the UK regulator mostly, which is called NICE, and they're responsible exactly for this kind of thing. So they get the reimbursement dossier from companies they have to evaluate it and then decide whether it's worth or not paying for that particular intervention. And then they recommend that the state, the Department of Health in the UK pay. Some other times, the projects that we've been doing are more uh, methodological. So, you know, you have the problems because most of the data are in a certain particular way, or because you see the, the seizure making process always going in a certain direction. And so you develop the methods to deal with these questions, essentially. And we've been working for a few years, for quite some time now, on this combination of things, which is very interesting, I think, because I, since my undergraduate, I think I've kind of, I've been fully committed to the Bayesian sort of approach in stats. I think I naturally think as a Bayesian, when I do even the, the, the little analysis or, you know, preliminary bits and bobs, I tend to just do... A Bayesian model that comes natural to me. And uh, health technology assessment, which is how sometimes we call this area of analysis, which is very much related to statistical modeling, is one of those areas where historically you've had a very strong Bayesian component. So I don't think this happens anymore. But for example, when I was studying, there were still some kind of remaining lingering kind of fraction between whether you do things in a frequentist or in a Bayesian way. Health economic evaluation, by its nature, because it's a relatively recent discipline, there's always been the idea, oh, some of these models are naturally Bayesian. So let's do them Bayesian. So you don't have to really fight and convince people that doing a Bayesian model is the right way to do it, which I really like because, you know, I tend to do that anyway. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And I
0: love, by the way, the small, there is a small sentence at the very end of their website that I'm not going to spoil, but I loved it. it. It was quite funny. So people will have to go there to see what I'm talking about. It talks <laughs> about statisticians in the world and Bayesian statistics. So yeah, that made me laugh.
2: I can say more if you want, I don't want to spoil it, obviously, but I said something like that at one of the big health economic conferences where most in the audience were economists. So yeah, of course, I think you annoy some people by just saying things like that. But I I kind of believed it.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure you were, you had to walk to do a walk of shame afterwards in the hallway.
2: Oh, no, no, no. Very proudly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Taking it on the chin. (laughs)
0: Perfect. I like to see some videos. (laughs) Actually, do you remember exactly how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods? And today also, I'm wondering how frequently you use them.
2: So I think it was my department in Florence, when I was doing my undergrad, well, my department, I say the Department of Statistics in Florence, where I had my undergrad, had a very strong Bayesian component. So there were quite a few courses, modules in Bayesian modeling. And I remember at some point, I, because the cohort was so small, you had quite some freedom in in how you would choose your modules and uh, the kind of the syllabus of your, of your degree. And so I took one advanced course, which was Bayesian modeling, where essentially I was the only undergraduate and everybody else was either a PhD student or a master's level. And I really enjoyed it. I think it was the first step in throughout my career, throughout the whole time that I've been working with statistics, where I started to understand what I didn't really understand before, you know, because you get exposure to the, the, the standard, the normal statistics. And I think you do have questions at the back of your head like, but this isn't exactly what, I w- what I'm interested in. I would like to know if this parameter does even make sense. What is the probability about that parameter rather than some convoluted statement? But I haven't fully registered that. And then when I actually was exposed to the Bayesian machinery, I thought, well, that makes a lot more sense. That is exactly how I think. Now, I think Some people still are trying to see this as a kind of a religious battle and they try to convince everybody else that they should be Bayesians. And I I do as a joke, but in the end, it just convinced me. I think it's how I reason about stuff. And so ever since, I've been very convinced that this is how I should do stats anyway. I mean, I joke and I say that everybody should do stats in a Bayesian sense, but at least I should do it that way.
0: Yeah, I see. And I'm curious, because, I mean, you touched on that already a bit, but how common are patient stats in your field, actually?
2: In health economics evaluation, quite a lot. We've been lucky, I think, because like I said, this is fairly new. It's called health economics sometimes because economists in the 70s started working on this idea of checking whether something works and whether it is value for money. We should pay for it because by more or less at that time, people started realizing that, you know, you don't have infinity dollars to spend on healthcare. There are limited resources. And so you have to prioritize and make sure that you spend it wisely to benefit most people in your population. And when everything happened in the UK started to happen, particularly in the UK, you had people like David Spiegelhalter, Tony O'Hagan, Carl Claxton, who are very much super strong Bayesian statisticians. And they were there at the forefront, uh, establishing the discipline. So like I said, I think it's a bit easier. You have to, I don't think you have to fight anywhere in any area of statistics or applications right now, but some places it is a bit more difficult. Like, you know, if you're doing clinical trials, for example, then you have to justify strongly why you want to go Bayesian rather than the standard frequentist p-value sort of analysis. Huh? Okay. In HDA, in health technology assessment, you don't so much. You can have a very good argument for doing your Bayesian model because it's a bit more established and also because it's embedded in a decision problem. And therefore, it comes more naturally, perhaps, to use that kind of approach.
0: Yeah. When I prepared the episode and saw the kind of models you're working on, I was like, yeah, that's really good, even though that's economics. And I know economics are not very Bayesian usually. I was like, yeah. I mean, that makes total sense to me that you're using Bayesian models here because, like, we're going to talk a bit more about that, like, in the episode, exactly what you're doing. But yeah, that makes total sense to. Use Bayesian stats here because, as I've been saying, that podcast it's just like it's not in the end. It's not a question of religion. It's just like using the best tool for the problem you have at hand. And, and here in those contexts, that does make a lot of sense because like you like you have prior knowledge in integrating it in the models is super important. And also the data can be noisy and not that big. So yeah, I, that often makes a lot of sense. And especially if you're focused on causal inference, I mean, the causal reasoning in the Bayesian framework and model is just like there from the get-go. It's not something you have to add. So
2: Yes, yes. I think I'm lucky enough because I managed to convince enough people that I know what I'm doing, even if sometimes you don't, as you don't. And so, you know, when I just say, yeah, no, we need to do a Bayesian model, they kind of believe me, so that's fine. I get away with it.
0: Yeah, I guess once you get to a level of credibility that people have seen you already use that weird stuff that's called patient stats and that they are not used to because, well, that's not teached a lot in university, but they've seen you use it in networks and that's actually more intuitive in the interpretation of the results. Well, why not try them?
2: I think there's, an, there's certainly an element that I was a bit kidding, you know, but I think what also help is one thing that we've been trying to do in, in my group is to make sure that there's a clear way of communicating what it is that you're doing. Because sometimes, you know, if you don't have that element, a Bayesian modeling sounds, well, statistics in general is a bit like, you know, magic. Some people don't understand what's happening because it is complicated. But sometimes we hide even more than we should. And therefore, there's a lack of trust because it's not very clear and transparent. Whereas I think a Bayesian model has the potential to be extremely transparent because, you know, I can hide everything in my prior, but then you can call me out and just say, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. Show me what you're doing in your prior and I'll tell you if I believe it or not. So eventually everything is out there and should be anyway, very transparent, which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's
0: why I love priors, right? It's like it takes the dust that was
2: under the rug
0: and it puts it in front of everybody. So, yeah. And I'm a bit surprised though to hear you say that it's still not very popular in the clinical trial runs and stuff like that? Because to me, that would be like exactly a domain where it would be super interesting to use patient sets because most of the time you have limited data and also a lot of prior knowledge, especially if you work with extremely specialized doctors.
2: I think things are changing and uh, they're changing for the better. Like, for example, there's a lot of work, there's a huge amount of research and applied work on... uh, the whole business of adaptive trials, where, you know, you have maybe limited information to start with, and then you want your trial design to change continuously to adapt to the signal that's coming from the data. And then you have the possibility of making a decision on whether the drug should go on or or be killed earlier on. Yeah. So that's very helpful and people are starting to realize that and uh, it's becoming more of state of the art. There are many cases, many situations, particularly down the line. Um, the clinical development is a very long process and uh, eventually you get to a stage where you have to demonstrate that the drug actually has some effectiveness on a relatively large population. At that stage, there's still some resistance and um, lots of agencies like the FDA, the European regulators, they tend to insist that there's a, a recipe. And I think some of it perhaps is due to the fact that as statisticians, maybe we have to some extent, back you know to the great work of Fisher and people like him, maybe to the non-statisticians, the message was that we provide a set of recipes. You have this problem, you do this test. You have this other problem, do an ANOVA. And maybe people think exactly in those terms, which I think is not very helpful because no problem is you know, unique. And you have to think about this specific issue that you have, and then you just set it up accordingly. So there are cases where it is still harder to go fully Bayesian on, on particular designs and, and studies. But having said that, for example, the, the Pfizer COVID vaccine was marketed on the back of a Bayesian analysis. So you know, it's happening, it's
0: changing. Yeah, I was like, all the COVID thing was uh, very interesting, especially in the UK. A lot of the modeling was patient based. And I know a lot of people from Stan helped for the modeling. Yes. Andrew Gellman also was, was consulted a lot. So I was like, I was super happy to hear that. And also on our end, like the PIMC team, we worked on some modeling more for the US. And so, like, yeah, I'm really happy it got on. And that was much more of a practical issue. It was like, oh, well, Actually, that stuff is super useful here because we don't have a lot of data. It's like kind of the first time we have such a huge pandemic at that level. Uh, It's not a repeatable experience all the time, you know? So it's like priors are useful here. So, yes. And generation, basically thinking about the data generating model here was super powerful. Yeah. Okay. Super. And actually, I mean, I love those topics. So, already I have two episodes. On that. So, episode 45, which was with Frank Harrell talking about biostats and clinical trial design. So, if any listeners want to refer back to that, that's super useful. And Frank is just like an amazing guest. Like, I could have made a three hour episode with him. And then a bit more general discussion I had with actually David Spiegelhalter. So episode fifty, if people want to refer to that and yeah, about like the notion of risk and uncertainty and probability, especially around COVID modeling and also communication to the general public, which is something also I, I find super interesting. Because yeah, you have like those like I think that you have the kind of the two extreme Way of communicating would be like being too, like communicating too much on the certainty side and then being like seeing statistics as a black box and toolbox, as you were saying, like, oh, if you have that, do that test. If you have that, do that test. And then, like, with time, if people see that as a black box, they will forget their models and so they will forget they are actually uncertain and they can fail uh, and they fail a lot. And then you have the other extreme, which is like once you've highlighted that to the public, well, you know, models are not perfect. They are a human product. So like you always have to take everything with a grain of salt and keep the uncertainty in mind. Then you have a lot of reactions, which are like, oh yeah, well then statistics is no use because you can fetch the number super easy. You know, it's like, if you want your model to tell me a percentage, you know how to do that. And and so I'm not going to trust your model. So I'm not going to trust anything that you're telling me, which is like failure-based and I will just trust, you know, the people around me and whether they have problems with the vaccine or not.
2: I think it's a historical accident that we as statisticians are responsible for because, again, I think that we, for whatever reason, we made the message pass that statistics was about proving things, which I don't think it is. I think that what we are as statisticians is people who take Information and try, if we're lucky and good enough, to reduce uncertainty about stuff. Because the world is so complicated that we, we just don't have a clue. We don't know almost anything about how the world actually works. And what we're doing is to try and say, well, given this data, I think actually, you know, before I didn't know anything and now I know a little bit. And that's what statistics does. and But, but again, it's complicated because people don't like to hear you that you know, the best effort that you produce is just still uncertain. People would like to know that, oh, well, yeah, I've done my stats and it's five, but it's never five, is it?
0: (laughs) Yes, the number is 3.2. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. And so actually, I'm curious if you have, like, because you're not working in, like, in a statistical department in a way, you're, like, much more applied. And so I'm wondering if you have, like, colleagues coming to you with their, you know, stats problems. And so in which, for which problems and in which circumstances would you advise? Someone to learn and use Bayesian stats because like that may be also something that listeners right now have on their mind. They have a problem at work or and they are like uh, like should I invest my precious time into learning more about that Bayesian stuff or not?
2: So I do. I am in a department of statistics. In fact, I have become last year the head of of my department at University College London, and we are the first ever established department of statistics in the history of academia. So we're very proud of that. Obviously, you know we've had a massive decrease in the quality of, of our heads, because it got to me at the end. So, you know, I'm very much I consider myself a statistician, I work in a statistical environment, the area of applications mostly is to do with biostatistics and this idea of decision making in healthcare. Um, but in reality, a lot of the developments that we do are are more general. And, uh, and actually, I enjoy working on areas that are nowhere near sort of the healthcare arena. So, in fact, I was once at a conference and I got introduced to some people and the the response was a very excited person who was just like, oh, you're the Eurovision guy, because they had read the paper that I written on Bayesian modeling of the Eurovision some contest, (laughs) which was just a joke. Essentially, we were trying to do it because it was fun, but I guess it got picked up more than the serious stuff that I was doing. But also, I think this highlights kind of the answer to your question it seems to me you know statistics is complicated there's no easy stats you can pretend that you can do some easy statistics you know you just uh, go to a software click on a couple of menus and then you get the five number that you would like but you're not really doing statistics if you're doing it seriously it is a complicated business it is something that requires technical expertise and uh, the Bayesian component of it is just like a marginally, perhaps in the beginning anyway, a bit more complicated than the standard way of doing it, but it's not a complete change in, in what you are doing. So if you're interested in, and again, we've been doing work on stuff for fun, like, you know, prediction of football results or the Eurovision, some contest just to see whether there was bias. Because again, we picked up in the media that some politicians were just saying, "Well, the UK never wins the Eurovision contest because Europe hates us, so that you know we should Brexit because of that." And I was just like, "No, that's not true." So we got the data and we actually did the model, and uh, but again, it can be applied to anything. And so taking the effort, getting to know the methods. If you come from statistics, I think it's your duty, even if you're not a Bayesian statistician, I think it's your duty to know all the developments. It's part of your discipline, so you should do it. If you're not a statistician, then you're still exposed to some stats. You need to understand how some things work. And, uh, you know, at least at the higher level, you don't need to necessarily be able to use your Stan and program it and create a particular module to run within Stan and then C++ and stuff. You don't need to do that are statisticians that can do it for you. But you need to understand what happens at the higher level. So, again, I may be biased in this, but I, it seems to me that everybody should have a, a working understanding of how stats works and Bayesian stats is, is just marginally a bit more complicated to start with, only to make it a bit more, well, clearer to me anyway, in the longer run. Yeah, I love that.
0: And for the record, I think, no, France already hated the UK before uh, Brexit. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the fault of Brexit. Um, that's probably true (laughs) no that's okay it's a love-hate relationship (laughs) thankfully it's much more in the football stadiums and rugby stadiums these days so that's way better yes yes yeah actually well you started uh, talking about that a bit so i'm wondering what do you think the biggest hurdles in the bayesian workflow currently are
2: i think To do when I, for example, when I work with my students and I teach them, and I'm very lucky because the stuff that I teach is very much related to the work that I do. So it's nice because I can kind of be very enthusiastic of the stuff that I show my students because it's the stuff that I do for a living anyway. The doing Bayesian statistics can be very complicated because you may need to learn new tools. You may need to learn... Something that is more of, I think, David Pigelhotra has a fantastic book, which is The Art of Statistics, which I think is a brilliant title because, you know, we think of us as scientists, which we are, but we're also artists in the way that, you know, some things you need to have the kind of know-how. And particularly, if you are from a Bayesian persuasion, you know, the prior, sometimes you use some structure and, uh, you know, if it's a probability, you stick a beta prior on it. Yeah, okay, to start with. But then how you actually model that is a lot bigger. Is a lot more uh, plain English or whatever language that you're trying to map onto mathematics, onto distributions. So that may be more complicated. That may be a barrier. But in reality, the understanding of how things work without, you know, leaving aside the technicalities, how complicated um, HMC could be or MCMC or Gibbs something or whatever it is, I think that it's fairly intuitive what it is that we're trying to do. And then again, I don't I disagree with people that say Bayesian statistics is a lot more complicated than frequency statistics because if you do things well, even frequency statistics is very complicated. If you're doing it well and you know, you don't have a normal distribution and you have to write down a massive likelihood to maximize, you need to know what you're doing. It's not something that anybody can just whip up, you know, on pen and paper. So, the level of complexity depends on how well and how realistically you're trying to model your problem, your world. And it just so happens, I think, that uh, being Bayesian has some advantages because it lets you push the boundaries of how realistic your model would be, which in turn makes it more complicated, perhaps, but because it's a better model. Yeah, exactly.
0: And, And in the frequencies framework, if you don't have the test, that's exactly like for... What you want, then you need to do extremely complicated mathematics <laughs> to to derive the test. The test, uh, whereas if you have the more of the Lego approach of the patient framework, yeah, then it's simpler.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes you know, there's an unbi well, there's a bias comparison. You know, if you have a fairly standard t-test problem where you have two bunch of people and you calculate the mean and you just do the t-test to see whether they're statistically different then maybe to do the equivalent version of that model in a Bayesian framework might seem a lot more complicated and a lot of work for nothing. But the advantages come up when the model is so complicated and you have so many parameters and so much complexity, integration of different data, which, like I was saying, I think it makes for a more realistic model. And at that stage, any model you make is complicated. And then the marginal increment in complexity that a Bayesian modeling can offer offsets the advan- is offset by the advantage that you have. So, you know, overall, you don't lose if you compare real models, complex models with complex models. Yeah, I could continue on that,
0: but I, I want to get a bit more technical <laughs> because I'm really curious about what like the kind of models you do in your work. So actually, let's let's switch gears and and talk about that. And yeah, if you can take an example from your work to help us understand basically how you use Bayesian stats for decision making in healthcare.
2: That's very interesting. and I think that's one of the most interesting thing about working in HDA. So the typical model that we have is, is fairly complex because, uh, first of all, we are different than the trial clinical trial people in some ways because we're not interested in seeing whether my drug is better than placebo. That's not the decision that we're trying to make. The decision that we're trying to make is, is my drug better than another drug that is already on the market and that people are normally using? And actually, there are five more different drugs that are already on the market. So which one is the best? That means that typically you don't necessarily have evidence like head to head comparisons, like trials for all the combination of different drugs. So... Most likely, what you will have to do is to combine different data sources. You might have a head-to-head trial of drug A versus drug B, or maybe versus placebo. Maybe you have a bunch of different placebo control studies with different active treatments, and you want to, to try and figure out the indirect comparison. So you have a trial of A versus placebo and a trial of B versus placebo. So can you use that sort of data and information to figure out whether A is better than active drug B? rather than both compared with against placebo. So that's one thing. The other thing is that sometimes you have a combination of individual level data, because perhaps that's the trial that you've been working on or the study that you've been working on. So you do have all the information you have, you know, your outcome, and then a bunch of covariates, age and sex and uh, other things about the patients. But often for the other drugs, you don't get access to the individual level data because they belong to a different company and you don't work for that company or with that company anyway. So you need to combine a bunch of individual level data with aggregated summaries that may come from literature or maybe you get information through expert opinions. So again, that kind of speaks directly to the Bayesian way of doing things because you need to combine different sources of data Potentially, some data that are very, that contain very little information, data that are kind of biased, perhaps, and so you need to rebalance things. And then being Bayesian may help in terms of having priors that can be centered away from the data because you don't expect the data to tell you the truth about a particular thing. And uh, the other interesting part is that often you need to construct what we call like a decision model. So there's a there's a purely stats component which is about estimating a bunch of parameters. But what you do with these parameters, you don't do tests or even simple estimates with that. You just want to propagate the uncertainty on these parameters and combine them because eventually whether a drug is worth buying or not is a function, which is often a non-linear, highly non-linear function of all of these parameters. So for example, you know, the cost is one element, but the benefits may depend on uh, odds ratios multiplied by some other parameters, multiplied by something else, and then everything gets put together to calculate some kind of utility function. So it becomes a fairly complicated model. We've been working on models that had, I don't know, 100 parameters or something like that. So being Bayesian helps because you can be modular, you can do different little modules which might talk to each other if you have evidence to connect them and then you estimate everything at once but you don't stop there you bring it to the next level which is calculating these economic summaries and then making a decision on top of them
0: yeah so that's and i find that it's really natural in the bayesian in the bayesian framework to do that right because once you have your posterior samples then you just basically count the number of samples that are in the scenario you're talking about, and the other ones that are not, and then you get your probabilities.
2: Exactly. So, you know, you do the decision model is based on getting the uh, expected utility and then you have a winner, you have the treatment that seems to be better given current evidence because it has a higher expected utility. But current evidence is always a bit shaky. So, you want to account for the underlying uncertainty, which is what we were saying before. So, some people don't like that, but that's a fact of, of life. You're not certain that the new treatment will be best. And so, you want to account for that in your decision model as well.
0: Oh, yeah, I see. Okay. So, how do you, what's a recent example that you can take to help people understand how that kind of model, for instance, would work? And Yeah, like also the main difficulties that usually appear when working on these kind of
2: projects. I think the main, well, there are two levels of difficulty, the the main barriers. The first one, I think, is the fragmentation in the backgrounds and specialties of the people who do this materially, this kind of work. Often you have, essentially, this business is about two components. There's the estimation of how much better clinically, something is in comparison to something else. Like, you know, if you take the simple example of a drug, how much better is drug A than drug B, essentially. And then there's the other component, which is about the costs, because you're not just interested in, you know, if we had infinity money for every single disease, we'd always pick the best drug, but we don't. And so we have to figure out a balance between how good a drug works and how much it costs to administer and deliver to the overall population of patients. And, And crucially, Whether, you know, you might invest a bit less in this disease area because there are better interventions in other disease areas. And so you save a lot more lives by concentrating uh, resources somewhere else. And uh, I think that often there is a divorce between who does one side of the story and who does the other side of the story. It's not always that there's the same team of people who have the same background knowledge and the same level of skills ability that would do the whole economic evaluation. Often people do very, very well the clinical side of things. And then they just pass some kind of summary data to the people who would do the economic evaluation, which is a bit silly. And uh, it's not the best way of doing it, I think. Perhaps the other barrier is, and this is something that we've been doing a lot of work, we've been trying to kind of push people around and just tell them, you have to do things this way. And often, the industrial standard is based on suboptimal tools. Like a lot of these models are still, unfortunately, based on kind of Excel spreadsheet. Oh, okay. Which is ridiculous. But, you know, it's a big industry, and uh, it's not impossible that a lot of the people in that industry would naturally go towards those kind of models. So there's a thing which is called RHDA, and we have a website, rhda.org which is a consortium of various academics and people working in this area trying to convince people that you know we should move away from non fit for purpose tools like spreadsheets are not good for this because the models that you need to do are so complicated that you need to be doing it seriously so R or open source tools are one way to go you could do it with any proper stat software but we focus on R because it's just easier and it has some advantages being open source and freely available so you know it opens up for jurisdictions where they have fewer resources and all the rest of it. Um, So again, I think these two things kind of impair in some ways the, the development of proper statistical methodology that feeds into that. But I think you asked, sorry, I took a massive tangent and I rambled on for an hour about other things. But I think you asked if I could give an example of things that we've done recently.
0: Yeah, no, but that was already a part of the answer to the, the other question, which was like the main difficulties that you were yeah that you were witnessing. So you should put the link to RHDA in the show notes. Yes, we'll do. So that people can refer to that because I think it's really useful. <laughs> like the less Excel sheet we have in this domain, the better. And yeah, okay, perfect. And so these difficulties are interesting to me also because it seems like Eliciting priors basically don't seem to be a big problem here. How has your how has your experience been in that matter?
2: I think people are coming to accept that the fact that you know you're asking them for information and uh, it's not frowned upon. It's not like oh, Uber, you're cheating. Then I'm asking you to tell you something about the model. Why don't you look at the data? There's an understanding of that. You need to be able to communicate. A lot of the people who work in this field don't necessarily come from statistics, so You need to figure out how to speak a common language. That's true, I think, in any application area related to statistics. I think even if I worked in a different area, I would need to be able to do this. And I think, again, this is something that comes with the art of statistics. Perhaps you learn how to do it. You learn how to communicate with people. You learn how to say things so that they would understand what it is that you mean and what it is that you're asking. It does help a lot to have a lot of visualisation. I remember the first few times that I was doing this, I was coming to it with a purely statistician's mind. So I would ask, what kind of distribution do you think this thing would have? And clinicians would just look at me weird and just wanted to punch me in the face. And they were right. Now you come with a different perspective. You just show them a picture and you say, does that sound like reasonable to you? Does that make sense? Is this kind of range what you'd expect this thing to happen within? And then again, it's your job to map that, to change that information into a distribution. And to some extent, they don't have to see what you're actually doing. I don't need to tell them necessarily that the prior is a normal 65, 38 on the logic scale. They don't care. I need to show them a picture that says, well, this is what you told me. Does that make sense to you? So, you know, once you learn to do that, then the conversation happens in a much easier way. And people want to be involved because, again, they don't feel like you're cheating information off them. You're actually telling something that they believe in and that they would be happy to justify in front of a panel and just say, no, I said that because that's the truth. Because as as a clinician with 50 years of experience, that's where you expect people to have blah, blah, blah.
0: Yeah, I completely see what you mean. Having people participate in the process is is super important. And also, we're like, they don't care what the name of the distribution is and what the parameters are and so to me it's more and more useful to go to domain experts and like basically showing them prior predictive checks posterior predictive checks and asking them how they see those plots and like how credible they think they are yes it's much more useful and much more important and then like in PyMC, for instance, now we have that PM.find constrained prior function where you can basically ask PyMC to use some mathematical optimization in the background. But basically, it's just like asking PyMC, okay, give me a normal distribution, which 95% of the mass is going to be, I don't know, between one and three. And that's all. Uh, and I. That's all you have to specify, and then PyMC will tell you, okay, then you can use normal with that mean and that standard deviation as your prior. And you can do that on the go. You can then generate prior predictive plots thanks to that prior, and then show that prior to the expert and validate it with him And also before, well, then the one inputting the the values in the find constraint prior function will be the expert telling you, well, most of the time it's between one and three. Absolutely. Like sometimes it's below, sometimes it's above, but not a lot.
2: I think that's crucial. Again, we've said it before. The expert, the domain expert, the people you need to work with, they don't care about the technicality, but it's correct that they don't care about the technicality. It is our job. I think it's translating what they tell you in, in plain language into mathematics, but... You know that's what we trained for. That's what we should be able to do.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, well, I actually um, made a, a YouTube video on like on a, a tutorial to show how to use that new function in PyMC find constraint priors. So I'll put that in the show notes for people. And I find it's a way more intuitive way of finding priors and especially eliciting them, uh, which is usually something that, that can be hard. Awesome. And. Another topic that's super important, especially in health, is causal inference, right? Exactly as you are saying. How do we know that a drug is more efficient than another one, and that actually because it's the drug and not some confounding effect. So how does that work for you? How, based on the the structures of the models that you already talked about, how do you add a layer of causal inference into this?
2: Absolutely that is a crucial thing and actually it's very interesting because the field of health economics again it's a big mixture you have lots of statisticians working on it but you have also economists you have modelers you have clinicians so i think it's been a bit slower to get to the point where everybody realizes that you need a bit more sometimes the model that you need to do is a bit more complicated because you have all of these nuances and all these complexities so i think by and large, the models that we do, they can be a bit bigger and a bit more complicated than the standard kind of statistical model that you can think of when you need to, you know, you have observational data and you have to make sure that the different treatment groups are are balanced um, and you can do propensity score, you can do matching. There's all sorts of different things, of course. In reality, a lot of what we do can be fed directly through that area. And then on top of that, we have to embed something more a bit bigger because maybe we have to model the costs or maybe we have to combine the parameters that we have managed to de-bias by doing some matching or something to do the actual economic evaluation. So a lot of the of the practicalities of the applied causal inference is based on methods that are existing. And again, most of it is through the biostatistic literature, I think, in terms of applications of again, all, all of these rebalancing methods. There are very interesting examples, although, um, which are perhaps a bit weird, and they only make sense if you start understanding where we're coming from. So imagine that you have a study, like you work with some company data, maybe, you know, you're a big pharma company, you're doing your more or less small study, and you give me your individual level data. And your trial is your new drug versus placebo, and it just happens that in your trial design, you've selected a population that is fairly young. yeah. So people to start with are not necessarily that sick. And so it may be that your treatment effect against placebo is not huge, because not many people are very, very sick. So the treatment effect gets kind of diluted in some ways. Like I said, this isn't what we're interested in, because in the real world, placebo doesn't exist. So maybe there's another study that somebody else has done of another drug versus placebo. And uh, because they've done it in a very old and sick population, then the treatment effect of drug versus placebo is huge. It looks like that drug is fantastic. It's really, really good. Now I can be naive and just take, you know, we have a common comparator. You have my drug versus placebo and your drug versus placebo. So maybe I can use that and kind of take the placebo effect away and have an estimate of my drug versus your drug. The problem is of course, that I'm starting with two populations that are very unbalanced because mine is very young. And so the treatment effect is very weak. Yours is very old. So people are sick and anything that you give them actually has a big effect. So you find yourself in a situation, this is something that is called sometimes indirect comparisons or uh, matched adjusted uh, population comparisons. And there's a a new strand of literature. And we've done a lot of work with um, some of my PhD students and colleagues. And the idea is essentially to embed this element of causal modeling to rebalance the two data sets that you have in the first instance. The complexity might be that, you know, if you had individual level data for all these two studies, you could do some kind of propensity scoring or or something like that. But in reality, in our case, you have individual level data for my drug versus placebo, and only summary statistics for your drug versus placebo. So it's a bit more complicated. And uh, there are some new methods that people have, have been trying to develop based on a lot of Bayesian machinery and uh, kind of Bayesian G computation, perhaps, to try and effectively rebalance things out and and make sure that you can do a my drug versus your drug comparison accounting for the fact that your drug looks better only because it's tested on a population that is sicker than mine, say.
0: I see. And so how would you do that here? For instance, you need two different models for each of the hypotheses that you have?
2: So essentially what you do in a natural is you try to rebalance the treatment effect, making sure that you're trying to test it on comparable populations in terms of the profile of covariates. So there are different methods in which you can do it. Uh, Some are based on multi-level modeling, some others, like I said, in uh, Bayesian G computation. So essentially you take the information from the aggregated level data and you try and reconstruct the effect that you see in your own individual level data on a population that has a profile of covariates that is similar to the other. So essentially, you kind of try to rebalance your treatment effect if you were to do a study in a population that is actually older and sicker rather than the young and okay population that you've actually done the study on.
0: Ah, I see. Yeah, so I understand why multilevel models would be super interesting here. Yes. Because even if you didn't observe like some parts, some cells of the population, or had very sparse data. Well, if you have fitted a hierarchical model on top of that, then you can generate posterior predictive samples from that cell. Exactly. Even though you haven't observed a lot of that population. And uncertainty flows in the whole graph, and also like information flows in the whole graph.
2: Exactly. So that's, I think, it, it's a very It's a big thing in in our field at the moment. Lots of people are trying to work on it. So there's been uh, quite some literature coming out. And again, I think it's very interesting because it comes from a very noble area of methodology, which is very much related to the business of causality and, uh, you know, rebalancing populations, making sure that you're comparing like with like. So it's very challenging, but it's very interesting. And and again, the application is is also very topical and uh, it gets even more... I don't know what the right word is. Fulfilling, perhaps, is a bit pretentious, but you, if you see what I mean, it's you know because it's embedded in a bigger decision problem. Then rebalancing things has an even bigger effect, perhaps. So it's a very interesting bit of modeling that you could do.
0: Yeah, I completely get that. Hierarchical models for data is just like still magical for me, even though I use <laughs> them all the time. It's just like I just love that. And, and recently, actually, I recorded a video with. One of our clients in PMC Labs, I worked with them on a, on a model, population model, not for health, but more for basically political orientation of people, like trying to understand what people think based on survey data. And so the NGO is called Salk. They are from Estonia and they run polls every, every month. So they have those polls, but then they are interested in demographic cells, basically. Like, so that could be, uh, so you have a big Russian speaking part of the population in Estonia. So depending on what you're working on as a politician, you could be wondering, okay, what does the Russian speaking men from 25 to 34 think about what we should do regarding the war in Ukraine? And so, of course, this is quite a specialized cell, which in your survey, you don't have a lot of people from. But... Yeah, we used a hierarchical model and also post-stratification because they have really good demographic data in Estonia. And using that, then you can actually ask that question to the model. And to me, that's really wonderful because you get posterior estimations for these people, for what they think, and they are pretty actionable. It's not like you don't get an uncertainty of like, okay, so they think the Estonian government should take more Ukrainian refugees, by 50% plus or minus 40%, you know, it's like it's really uh, the uncertainties are still very much actionable. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, to me, it's just I know, I know how it works mathematically, but still seeing it, and how useful it makes your model for then the analysis and how people will consume the model, to me makes it almost magic.
2: Yes, yes, it's true. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I just love that. And so like, if people are interested in that, well, there are a couple of episodes related to hierarchical models already on the podcast. So um, people can check that out. And actually now you can access, if you want, there are playlist from the podcast. So folks, if you want, you can just like subscribe to a playlist with a particular topic and it's a particular RSS feed. And if you add that to your podcatcher, you will receive all the podcast episodes which are dedicated to that field. So, for instance, that could be uh, there is a biostats and health modeling playlist, and this episode is going to be into it. And so, you would only receive these episodes on these RSS feed if you uh, like follow that one. And also, it's on YouTube. So
2: go free people.
0: Yeah. So I post that in the show notes. I also put a link to the um, the video I made with uh, Thomas Vicky and Termo Juristo where we talk about that. Hierarchical Bayesian model of survey data with post-certification. It's, it's just like yeah, it's a huge topic as you were saying, but it's so useful, and I encourage people to look into that because it sounds complicated, but to me, it's not that complicated because once you understand that, it all relies on the data generative model. Then you pretty much could. Your goal is to run the model, and once you have that, you can generate posterior samples, posterior predictive samples for any part of the population. And it's just that if you don't have a lot of data for that part of the population, then your prior is going to be more important. And also, the information you get from the other groups that are more or less close to those groups are going to be very important
2: too. And I think. Hierarchical modelling, whatever you want to call it, multi-level modelling, is one of those things where to try and put a a non-Bayesian spin on it actually makes it very, very hard because you need to think in terms of a superpopulation of effects that exist in some ways but not in other ways, whereas to actually embrace the full Bayesian nature of it actually makes it very straightforward because effectively, it's like you're saying, you know, you have... Things that you observe, then uh, latent groups that you can define and, uh, through some measure of similarity, exchangeability, and then everything seems to me kind of flows more naturally. So it's not that complicated once you look at it from the right angle. Yeah, exactly. Is like these kind of analyses, kind of
0: like counterfactual analyses, are like first class citizen in the Bayesian in the Bayesian framework. It's just like it's something I've been. Puzzled by actually like all that excitement about counterfactual plots and analysis. And I, to me, it's really natural. It's just like it's doing post operative sampling in a way. It's just like you change the data that the model has seen. But actually, if you don't come from the Bayesian framework, it's like kind of revolutionary to be able to do that because it's quite hard. But if you do that in the Bayesian framework, it's just like, well, you just swap the data and then see what your model is telling you, it's just poster. we've been calling that forward sampling and posterior predict sampling for years, but now apparently it's called counterfactual. Okay.
2: <laughs> in another life, almost in another century, uh, when I was doing my PhD, actually, I was working on something related to causal inference, and part of it was about causal modeling. But I was working a lot with lots of the models that Phil David, who's then become my boss at UCL when I moved here was working on, so in a kind of causal inference without giving counterfactuals so much prominence. And I think his work maybe hasn't got as much traction from the applied side of things, but there's a lot of value to it because essentially what he was saying is, uh, all of his approach was there are problems where you need to rely on counterfactuals, these things that he was calling sort of the causes of effects. When you know, you're imagining something that you just don't have and you will never have the data, to figure out. And so it has to be this kind of potential metaphysical world. But in many other problems, actually, you can just think forward and do some kind of hypothetical modeling rather than counterfactual modeling. So I think counterfactuals are, you know, sometimes they're great and they work really well. They're very Bayesian in nature. And I think it's no surprise because, you know, Don Rubin was a massive Bayesian statistician. And uh, I think when he was thinking of these things, even in the missing data arena, which he did a, a huge amount of work on, he was thinking as a Bayesian and he was doing like somebody who didn't have the Bayesian machinery, but everything that he has done in missing data It's just a Bayesian model. And now we're stuck with this weird kind of something in between, where, again, people think in terms of, oh, what if I could do simulations of my model and uh, replace the missingness through some distribution? But then they do like Rubin started doing in the 70s because he didn't have MCMC and all the computers. So you do the kind of 10 multiple imputations. But that is just an approximation to a full Bayesian way of thinking about things.
0: Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
2: But again, it's no surprise because Don Rubin is was a massive Bayesian, so he would think that way naturally.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: It was just a a lack of tools that he didn't have at his disposal back then when he was working with these things.
0: Agreed. Oh, yeah. Actually, um, I'm curious, which package do you use to run your models?
2: I do a combination of things. So I'm weirdly proud that WinBugs and I share a birthday. So the first ever release of WinBugs was, was out on the day of my birthday in 1997. So he, WinBugs is a bit younger than I am. But other than that, we, we, we shared a birthday. So I've been using it for a very long time. And uh, I still do sometimes bugs or jugs or sort of give sampling sampler, essentially a software I've done and I can use, I think, to a very good level Stan. So obviously, you know, that kind of takes a bit of a barrier to get into its mood and to understand how, how it works and why it works in a certain way. I have done lots of work with INLA, Integrated Nested Laplace Approximation. I'm not dogmatic in terms of the software that I use. I think as a statistician, even before as a Bayesian statistician, you need to be aware of the plethora of methods that are out there, of tools that are out there. So I've tangentially worked with Nimble, which again is very similar to, it's kind of a mixture between bugs and stun. The the language is very similar to bugs, but it's more of a probabilistic software rather than a sampler as bugs or jugs are. So it depends a bit on the problem. I try and leverage the advantages of the different tools for the problem that I have. Yeah, okay.
0: No, I I always ask that question, especially for people in academia, because (laughs) I find it interesting to see what are the, the most useful package to them, and also always highlight the fact that they don't have to write their own Custom MCMC sampler. Like that's why Stan and PymC and all the goodies are there for. So, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let the nerds do that and then write the models.
2: I think to some extent it might be frustrating because many people may come to this world and they take the time to learn one of the tools only to realize that when they finish understanding something and being able to do the models themselves, then the tool is kind of obsolete at that point. You've spent a lot of time learning bugs and then here comes time and everybody jumps on that wagon because it, it has lots of advantages and for good reasons. But maybe, again, maybe we need a bit of a better communication and uh, to some extent, as long as you know what tools are doing, as long as you know that they are out there, maybe then the, the marginal impact of learning a new tool becomes a bit smaller because you're more familiar and you're more solid with, you know, the basics. Um, but again, I think if you have the luxury of being in the position where I am, where I can sort of try and still even now make some time to, to see new things, I think it's it's our duty. We should take that kind of opportunity to to stay up to date, more or less. Yeah.
0: And actually, I'm curious what the future of Bayesian stance looks like to you, especially in your field, and more specifically, if there are things you'd like to see and things you would not like to see?
2: That's an interesting question. So I think, like I said, and like I say on my website, I feel very much a statistician and I feel like statistics as a discipline should have a primacy. Again, that might be my bias, obviously, because everybody likes what they're doing and they think that everybody else should do it. So I can see very good reasons for the huge popularity and development of you know, what people call data science, and I don't have a problem with that. I think, however, that we should keep the connection. We should keep maybe both alive. We should recognize where a discipline feeds off another. And again, I think as statisticians, we haven't done a fantastic job of this You know, historically. You have fields like econometrics, epidemiology, Again, I could be very annoying to people and just say that everything is statistics and you just call yourself an econometrician and people would want to punch me in the face and you know that would be right. But realistically, we've kind of made mistakes along the line in history by just focusing on our own very narrow, perhaps, methodology and uh, an area of publication research. Whereas maybe we would have benefited more if we had had more Connections and interchanging with the econometricians, the epidemiologists, and now the data scientists. So I think, and I hope that's where we would go as a discipline. I wouldn't want to see statistics kind of embedded somewhere else. I think there's a scope, we need to be statistics, we need to make sure that we keep doing what we're doing. And even if it means having very, very close connections with all of our cousins, You know, we have to keep working with the computer scientists because we need better and more efficient algorithms to run our simulations. We need to work with the data scientists because obviously they need to bring problems, needs, uh, ways of improving You know, the way in which we visualize our data or, or pre-process and post-process our results. We need to keep talking to epidemiologists because they have interesting problems and tools that they might need to expand. But I think, I hope that we continue to be kind of central. I think one of the things that I really, really like about being a statistician is that essentially, you know, I can talk to many of my colleagues. I'm lucky because UCL is a, is a huge university. We have virtually all departments. You can talk to political scientists, doctors and historians. And I think, there's very few chances where I, I couldn't actually push something about statistics in the conversation. And I think that's vital. We should be very proud of that. We should try and make it stay for as long as we can. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I
0: think that's very important. And having that diversity of approaches here is extremely important, especially when modeling. To me, that that's always super helpful. So time is flying by. So before asking you the last two questions, I'm curious if... Like more globally, what do you think is your field's biggest question right now? You know, the one that you'd like the answer to before you die.
2: Do you mean in statistics or in economic evaluation?
0: No, I'd say in economic evaluation.
2: I think at the moment, a lot of people are doing a lot of work on two main areas, I think. One is what I was saying before, this business of comparing limited information from populations that are different but that you need to kind of pull across and have an indirect comparison. And the other one is the field of modeling, which uh, is related to kind of survival analysis, time to event. And this is very prevalent because for example, almost invariably, every cancer study, every cancer drug is first put on the market and then decided upon their reimbursement on the back of some kind of survival modeling. But we have a quirk in HDA in H technology, in health technology assessment, because most often the data that we have for the survival analysis are very immature. So, you know, theoretically, you would like to see a full survival curve where people are, uh, everybody's alive in the beginning and then everybody is dead at the end of the observation, where you don't have censoring, essentially. But in reality you get a lot of studies, particularly with the new drugs, with immuno-oncology therapy, that tend to work very well, where the study is not long enough to get you to see a survival curve that goes down below 0.5. So, you know, you don't even get to see median survival. And yet we we need to use those models, those data, to have a full extrapolation of the survival curve all the way down to zero, because that's what you need for, for your economic model. So, Again, I think there's a huge amount of work. People have tried to figure out what is the best way to do an extrapolation that is sensible based on very limited information just at the beginning of the time horizon. And people have suggested splines or flexible models. But again, I believe by and large, this is a problem that you can't solve just with one data set that you have because it has very limited information without including external knowledge. So without being fully Bayesian and openly Bayesian about it. So I think a lot in HDA is to do with this kind of thing, because there's a, I don't know, some people say about 40% of everything that happens in in this arena is about cancer drugs, survival analysis type of things, one way or another. So that's certainly a a big area of research.
0: Well, awesome. I I would have... A lot more questions, but let's call this a show. And let me ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show before letting you go, of course. So first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve?
2: I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would like to go and obsess too much about one single problem because I think the beauty of, Again, this is going to be very nerdy, but I am nerdy, so that's fine. I, what I really, really like about my job or my about my discipline is that, you know, you live your life and you listen to the news, you go to watch my son football game or something, and there's always invariably something that you can think of in stats terms. So I guess that's the nice part, you know, that's not concentrating on one single thing. If I had unlimited time and unlimited money to do research, I would just probably span it to even more than that unlimited money and time can can actually try and do. So I don't think that I would have a single single thing that I'd like to do. But if you have unlimited money, you can send them along and (laughs) we'll figure something out.
0: (laughs) I'll see. I think if I had unlimited money, I'd just invest it uh, to make Napolitan pizza available for anybody at any time. That would be much better,
2: yeah. That's a good point. Actually, I haven't thought of that. Yes. You know, I, we actually do, we have a tradition in our family, we do pizza ourselves every week, at least once a week. So we just do the dough and then I'm the sort of official pizzaiolo of our family. Oh, yeah.
0: Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I have to come to London.
2: Like, normally <laughs> I
0: don't come a lot to London, but now I have a reason. You have a reason now. Yes, Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Gianluca, Grazie mille. I learned a lot. And I'm sure the the listeners too. I mean, it was a very tense episode. So the show notes are going to be as dense as the discussion. And that's a really good sign. So yeah, as usual, I put resources and a link to your website in, in the show notes for everybody who wants to dig deeper. Thank you again, Gianluca, for taking the time and being on this show.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I've enjoyed it very much. I had lots of fun. So uh, well, thank you for having me.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Well, next time we'll do that live while eating your pizza.
2: Absolutely. That's a deal.
0: This has been another episode of Learning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on podchaser, and visit learnbastestats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Patient State of Mind. That's learnbastats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a
1: good base. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing. Let's adjust those expectations Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. those predictions that your brain is making Let's get them on a solid foundation